Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Um, this is verse 24, chapter 7, verse 24 through verse 36. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Yet we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he had taught in the temple, quote, you know me, and you know where I come from. That's a question mark right there, notice. You know where I come from? Question mark. So Jesus proclaimed, as I taught in the temple, I want to read that again, so you get the emphasis, quote, you know me, and you know where I come from? Question mark, Jesus says. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. End quote. So they sought to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, Quote, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? End quote. The Pharisees heard the crowd thus muttering about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus. And Jesus then said, I shall be with you a little longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. For where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Quote, where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come, end quote. So that's the end of the passage there from 24 through 36. This is directly following last week's discussion and confrontation between Jesus and the, the leaders of the Jews. And if you remember, last week they had this dispute about the Sabbath, and they actually accused Jesus of having a demon. And now they're continuing, and Jesus... So they, they were judging Jesus last week. They actually called him, they said, you have a demon. You remember that from last week? I uh, can't remember the exact verse, but we can look at it. They said... Uh, um, in verse 20, the people said, you have a demon, exclamation point. Uh, who is seeking to kill you? Because Jesus called them out for their seeking to kill him. And we heard those phrases again today. That it seems like the, the tension is mounting from the leaders of the Jews to do something with this Jesus, who is, they see, a great challenge to them and a threat to their, uh, their standing with the people and their community. But in this passage, Jesus is very forthcoming and very revealing. And he begins by calling them out on their judgment. You know, if you call somebody a demon, you've pretty much judged them, right? You've made a judgment about them. Uh, and it's a poor judgment. It's a pretty evil one, a mean one. And 
so he says this opening words, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's talk just a little bit about judgment. In another place in the gospel, Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Right? You ever hear that phrase when somebody says something and you, you hear somebody, they challenge you and say, now don't judge. Okay? Or you're judging me or don't judge me. Well, what is, what, what is it? Can we judge or not? Can we judge or not? Does the gospel allow us the freedom to judge others? Can we inspect their fruits? <laughs> That's a good way to think. Can we inspect their fruits? That's good. <laughs> I've always heard we're just inspecting yeah. their fruits. Yeah, I think Jesus has talked about fruit on the trees. A bad, good tree doesn't yield bad fruit. Bad tree doesn't yield good fruit. Maybe it's that the way he said it. So judgment. But, but really, Jesus isn't telling us that we can't judge. He's not even telling us that we shouldn't judge. He's telling us, be very careful how you judge. Because the ultimate truth is we have to judge. We have to make judgments. In business, in life, in families, in churches, we, we have to make calls. If you want to put it that way. We gotta, somebody's got to make a call. That's just life. But the question is, how do you judge? And how do you know? Jesus says, judge with right judgment, or some might say righteousness. How do we know? There's some excellent words on this from uh, St. Augustine back in the 4th century, and I really like what he had to say on this, so I want to read it to you. <clears throat> but before I do, anybody want to take a stab at what it means to judge with right judgment? How do you have right judgment? I think Augustine's got a good answer, but I'll let you all take a try at it before I just read it to you. here. No? Nobody wants to try? Are you anxious to hear what Augustine said? Okay, here's what he said. It requires a lot of work in this world to stay clear of the vice our Lord has noted in this place. Talking about this judging others. Augustine says it requires a lot of work in this world to stay clear of the vice the Lord has noted in this place. It is difficult to maintain sound judgment and to stop judging by appearances. Now that's exactly what Jesus said of them. Do not judge by appearances, you'll notice in verse 24. So Augustine's saying it's difficult to maintain sound judgment or right judgment and to stop judging by appearances. His, meaning Jesus, his admonition to the Jews is an admonition to us as well. Let us not judge then by appearances but hold to sound judgment. But who is it who does not judge according to appearances? Here's the answer. It is the one who loves all equally. It is the one who loves all equally. When there is equal love for all, then we do not accept people on the basis of who they are. Augustine is absolutely right. Love is the end. What does it mean to judge people rightly? It means to love them. When we come to the place where we can truly love all, Augustine said. He's, and he's not saying anything new. This is what Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, love everyone. John goes on to write in his epistle, remember, love is how we will be known. You know, They will know we're Christians by our love. So 
So love is the key. Love. What kind of love? There's different kinds of love, isn't there? I think that clearly the love of God, which is an agape love, which is an unconditional love. What does it take to love everyone unconditionally? What does it take? Let's spend a little bit of time. Because this, this is the key to the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. This is the key to the gospel. It doesn't matter how much we learn about the Bible, how many verses we memorize, what doctrines we've learned, if we don't have love, true love, we're nothing. And the gospel is void in our work. So this really is the key. What, is it, what does it take? It's easy to love those who do good to you. It's harder to love your enemies. It is. And that's what Augustine's admitting here. This is hard work. It's not easy. It's not easy to love our enemies. It's not easy to love those that are necessarily different in ways we don't like. But yet we must. We must. And I would go so far as to say that the greatest downfall of the Christian church is when it does not love. The greatest hindrance to the gospel is not so many different theologies and people can't make a choice. It's that so many Christians don't live lives of true love. And I'm, I'm as guilty as the rest, okay? I'm not teaching from any point of virtue here. We all need to hear this message, I, including me. But yet, the longer I live, the more I live, and the more I minister and the more people I meet, the more I'm drawn to the conviction that I have to lay down my prejudices and my, my prejudgments of who they are and what they might want and what they might do and just simply love them and pray for them. Because Jesus says not only love them, he says pray for those who persecute you. Um, yes, go ahead. Um, and I know, I know you're saying that you need to love everyone. It's hard to love somebody. Um, sorry. No, it's okay. Like my dad. Yeah, it's hard to love somebody that's hurt you. Mm-hmm. It is. And I want the best for him, and I want him to make it to heaven. And I don't have. I mean, I'm I'm hurt, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I don't have mm-hmm. any ill. I don't want anything bad to happen to him. Let me say it like that. And I pray for him, but it's hard for me to love him. So let's he's hurt me and my yeah. family so bad. So let's explore what that love looks like, because I hear your heart when you say it's hard to. It certainly is hard to love those that have hurt us. But I think we need to understand what that love looks like. What I, what I don't think it looks like. I don't think it looks like forcing us to go and be with that person. You know what I mean? So what I heard, I, what I heard in your voice there, Rhonda, was I heard, I heard love. I, I want him to go to heaven. I want him to be okay. I don't hold any ill will against it. That is love. Okay, that is love. It's because of the nature of the relationship. There's no way to really go to him and perform acts of love. Because I've tried. You've tried that and it always ends up void. Sure. I felt thrown in the trash. But don't underestimate your own ability to love. Because I think what you're saying is love. To, to wish someone no ill will and to wish that they would know salvation, that's love. 
That's love. Um, so, especially in the face of the most difficult circumstances. I can't think of a more difficult circumstance than a father that hurts a child. I just can't think of a more difficult. There probably are, but I just can't think of it. So to, to come to the place where you lay down your, your, your uh, ill will against them for having hurt you, and that kind of surrender, that is a point of love because you no longer hold it against them. You'll always be hurt. That's the sad part is we'll always hurt. We're humans, and we can't forget the hurt that's been done. But we can learn to love in a way that doesn't allow that hurt or that heartache or that pain to control our abilities to love others. And I think that's, the, the Pharisees clearly could not hear that in Jesus' words that day. I mean, they, they had no love in their hearts for this man, that, that this Jesus they, that has come before. They had no love for him. They saw a person who... If he really were, I mean, they saw miracles, and we're going to talk about that some more. They saw things that would blow your mind, but in the face of all of those things, they chose to want to kill him. How can you do that? How can you deny God working through this great man? Now, I believe he's the Christ, the Son of God. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But, I mean, and you're going to see some of the people, look at what they said. When you get down to verse 31, some of the, the, the people are wrestling with who is Jesus? Who is this guy? He talks so good. He does so many good things. Who is this guy? And so they have this dialogue here. And, and, it, and it says, it starts in verse 25, where it says, some of the people of Jerusalem. Now, why did John put that little note in there of Jerusalem? Now, this is the Feast of the Tabernacles. So we have people from all over the countryside there. And notice that John notes some of the people of Jerusalem. Why does he single them out? Could it be perhaps because Jerusalem is the place where Jesus' judgment was the harshest? They were the ones that were, that's where the leaders resided, most of them. That was the seat of government, if you will. And that's where he was the most, he was held the most skeptically. And the most persecuted, and of course ended up being killed. So John notes, it, it's these people from Jerusalem that are the problem here. And they're causing problems. And, and they are the ones that are saying, is not this the man they seek to kill? And even there, some of the people of Jerusalem, they're, they're confused. Isn't this the guy we know that leaders are trying to kill this guy? But here he is speaking openly. And we talked about that last week. Remember, he's in the court of the Gentiles in the Solomon's portico area there. He's in the court of the temple, in the temple, outside the temple building, in an area where it's kind of like a marketplace where many people are teaching and gathering and doing things. And they're like, I know this is the guy that the, we've heard they're trying to kill, but yet here he is speaking openly. Could it be that they think he's the Christ? Or, or else they would just come and they wouldn't let him do this. They wouldn't let him teach openly like this. So you see what's happening in their minds. And, and he hears them. So apparently this dialogue is within Jesus range because they say can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Yet we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Well, What are they saying there? Right after that in verse 28, Jesus responds to them. So we know that Jesus actually heard their conversation. 
and Jesus' response to them. But before we get into Jesus' response, let's think about their expectations. People are wondering, is this the Christ? Well, who is the Christ? What is the Christ? We know, perhaps most of us, we use that word all the time. You know, uh, some people say, well, that's Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's not. <laughs> it's not. That's, that's just poor theology. That's just silliness. I'm, just, I'm saying that almost tongue-in-cheek as a joke. So thanks for laughing. Um, how, does, how does your, I don't know what version you have, but mine, that statement about uh-huh. the, the rulers knowing or not knowing Christ, how does yours say that again? Verse 27? Or verse, which, which verse? Uh, 26? Right before that. The okay. rulers do not. The yeah. second part of 26. Okay. 26 here says, this is the Revised Standard Version, and it says, and here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? What does your say? I have the NASB. Uh-huh. And it says, uh, the second part after they, mm-hmm. they, they say nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Question mark. Question mark, yeah. <clears throat> so that sounds that, a little bit different. Than it sounds slightly different. The way that's phrasing it sounds like that's giving them even a little more faith. They're saying, yeah. do they? This is the Christ. They don't know, do they? You know, so that, that's affirming even more faith in them than this version does. Yeah, that's what I was. And either way, I think, either way, I think it sets it up. Um, I, yeah, I think it sets it up that, that the point is some of the people are believing. And some of them are not sure. And some of them definitely don't. Okay, so we've got three groups going here. Some of them are believing. Some of them are really not sure. And some of them definitely don't and are against him. And so in that, in verse 27 is, is the challenge because they say they know where he comes from. So th- now we've got people who are not believing. They're having trouble. Let's rephrase it. They're having trouble believing. Because they're saying, well, we know where this guy comes from. And when the, when the Messiah comes, nobody's going to know where he comes from when he appears. I put that word on here, the appearing. We, we need to know a little bit about the Greek here, uh, language. We know that, the, let's start with the word the Christ. I'll take them in order. The Christ, this is a Greek word, Christos. Okay, Christos. You heard the word Christos. That means Christ. Which is from the Greek, which is uh, from the Hebrew, we get the word, the original Hebrew word is Mashiach. Mashiach is transliterated into Messiah. Okay? So Hebrew Messiah, Greek, the Christ. What do they mean, though? They literally mean the one who's been anointed. Okay? That, that this is the anointed one. So the people thought, and where, where did their thinking? You want to talk a little bit this morning about what they're thinking. What are they thinking about this anointed one who is to come? Okay, we're going to talk about that word, to come, versus what it means to be appearing. There was, a, there was great expectation. By this time, there was great expectation on the people. We've talked about this before, that something's about to happen. The Messiah, or the, remember John's writing to more of a, uh, a world, the whole audience of the whole world by now. So he uses the word 
Christ, which is very Greek, or Gentile, whereas Matthew and Luke are writing more, uh, Luke uses the word Christ too, but Matthew specifically uses the word Messiah over and over and over, which is to a very Jewish audience. So by this time, John's writing about the Christ, and, and, and he's writing in a way that people are asking, by the time of, by the time of Jesus, there's great expectation that, that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to save them. He's going to deliver them. This has been brewing for about a couple of hundred years now, right before Jesus. There were messiahs that came and went. There were people that claimed to be the Messiah or the Christ. And then people would greatly follow them and then they'd end up being killed. And, oh, I guess that wasn't him. You know, but people were, people were ready for they were ready for the promises of God. So it speaks to the question, what do they know about the promises of God? Because they say, we know where this guy comes from. Well, if you search the Old Testament and you search the prophecies about the Messiah, you learn some things that are pretty glaring. You learn that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. You learn that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. You learn that that the Messiah will actually uh, enter Jerusalem on a, on a colt and a donkey. I mean, there's so many practically practical things that had they really known the scriptures and known who Jesus was, they may, may have connected the dots. But maybe that's asking too much of them, too, because they're not Bible scholars, and they don't meet every Thursday for Bible study like we do. And they didn't. Okay, they're not Bible scholars. They're just rank-and-file people who don't even know how to read most of them. Could they? Yeah, I was going to ask, could they even read? A lot of them probably couldn't. But the scrolls were read. There's certainly leaders and people that can, and, and they read the scrolls in synagogue every week. And, 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 but there's this 500-year this gap between when those scrolls were written and when they're being read in the people's presence here around Jesus. And in that 500-year gap, there's all kinds of thoughts and expectations have come up about who Messiah will be. And the number one expectation is that he will be the one who saves us. And to save them meant not from sin, but from uh, being slaves of the Roman Empire, basically. The new Redeemer, like Moses delivered them from Egypt, the new Messiah, the new Redeemer, he's going to deliver us from the Roman Empire. Because remember, this is a people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, has not existed as a sovereign nation since the Babylonian captivity. And when King Artaxerxes gave the, gave the, sent out the message that let them go back and start rebuilding the city, they didn't go back as a sovereign nation. They went back as a ruled people. He just let them rebuild and settle their homeland. So from then on, they were never sovereign again until 1948, 1947, whatever that was. So the people are, are they, but they know that they're the people of God. They're the chosen people of God. They believe God is going to change the world through them. And so they don't understand this idea that, that the Christ is going to have two comings. His two comings, or two appearings, if you will. They didn't understand that at all. They just thought there would be one. And when he comes, it'll put an end to all this business with the Roman Empire and we'll rule the world. And it'll be the messianic kingdom, the great kingdom of God, come the new age, if you will. 
So if you factor that into their minds, they're saying to Jesus, we know who this man is and where he comes from. And Jesus hears them, and Jesus says, oh, you do? You think you know who I am? You know, you know me? You know where I come from? That's his question mark in there. It's very important that we see that. And he knows they don't know. They know he's from Nazareth. And they go on, and you know, they talk about this. Um, I don't think it's right here. Um, is it? Let's see. He can come from... Yeah, it doesn't say it right here. In other places, they talk about... Other places in the gospel, they talk about the fact that, you know, nothing good can come from Nazareth. You've heard that before. This is the way they're thinking. This guy's not from... He's the son of a carpenter. There's no way he's the Messiah. But yet, they're perplexed because they see so many miracles. And, and so there, there's a great... I think Jesus notices there's an honest perplexity in many people. But he also notices there's a hardness in some people, particularly the leaders. And so he, quite frankly, he just tells them who he is. I think Jesus here reveals himself in a way that we haven't seen yet. I know at the woman at the well, in, in chapter 4 was it, I think he said, I am he. You know, he revealed himself to her as the Messiah. But this is a public event. This is the great festival. Pardon me, the great festival of the tabernacles, and Jesus is revealing himself and where he comes from and the source of his truth and his teaching. So hear Jesus' words again. In verse 29, he says, I know him, for I come from him. Well, let me back up a little. Um, you know me, and you know where I come from, question mark, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. Clearly he's talking about God his Father. The one who sent him. And he uses the word to describe him as true. Now, verse 29. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Immediately the next verse says, so they sought to arrest him. So when they heard Jesus say, I know God the Father, because I came from God the Father, they are ready to arrest him. Because in their minds, he's just a guy who came from Nazareth. They don't really know who he is. And I think this is important for us to reflect upon because it's true in our lives as well. When we truly know who Jesus is, it transforms us. That's what the world is looking at. Who is Jesus? That question is still relevant in our world today. I think almost everyone in the world's heard of Jesus, it seems like. But almost no one in the world really knows him, it seems like. Do we really know? What does it take to really know Jesus? Because that word knowledge implies intimacy. And Jesus is saying, I come from him. I know him. I know God the Father. So how could he come from God unless he is God? Right? Unless he is God. He couldn't do it. Um, and it says they try to arrest him, but of course they can't lay hands on him. It says, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. So there's this interesting, I, I wonder what that looked like in a crowd. They want to arrest him, but they don't. They want to lay hands on him, but they don't. I, I can't imagine what that quite looks like. There's just this, and, and why? Because his hour had not yet come. Now, important note here. Remember last week we saw that same phrase? 
because his hour had not yet come, when he wouldn't go up to the temples when his brothers were egging him on, because his hour had not And what did we learn about the Greek word hour? Last week, Jesus used the Greek word kairos, which meant chronological time. It's not the right time. It's not the right day for me to go. And it's the only time Jesus ever used that word was last week in that scripture, in the beginning of seven. But this time, he says the same phrase. We hear John write the same phrase because his hour had not yet come. But John uses a different word here. John uses the word ora, H-O-R-A. That's the other Greek word we talked about. And that means a time that cannot be moved. It is a fixed time in eternity. That's the time of that time. It's not his time yet. Okay, it's not time for him to be killed or to uh, be crucified for us. So the time of his great uh, sacrifice. So they're, they're, always keep in mind when you hear that his hour has not yet come. From here on out in the gospel, it's, it, usually it replies to that hour that cannot be moved, that time that cannot be moved, that day that's been fixed in the mind of God. Now, um, so when that happens, it says, yet many of the people believed in him. And then they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than these? So some people are getting it. Some people are definitely getting this. And, and it's interesting how this works because some of those people might even have been the, the temple guards we, we wonder about. Because look what happens with the Pharisees. In verse 32, the Pharisees hear the crowd muttering, and it says that they sent officers to arrest Jesus. So the Pharisees, the, the temple Pharisees, they actually have their own guards. Remember, they're not these. They send officers to go arrest him. They have the temple uh, uh, temple guards, and it says here. Uh, then he said. Then Jesus said, "I shall be with you a little longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come." So Jesus is. That's almost a very cryptic saying. They're not sure what that means, um, and I'll talk about what that means in just a minute. But first, look at the response. Um, he says, you will, you will seek me, and you will not find me. And the people are curious about that. If, we're not going to go into this next section, probably. We might, we might get some of it done, um, because it really changes the, the focus. It's still in the Feast of Tabernacles. It changes the section. But right here in this section, uh, they start asking the question of each other. Where does this man intend to go? Where does he intend to go? Now, let me come back to something that I didn't mention, this, this idea of his appearing um, before I answer that, because I, I kind of skipped over that when I talked about the Christ, and I wanted you to know. There are two Greek words that sometimes are used to talk about the appearing. And that one is, uh, paru, the one that's used most often is the parousia. That's the one, the parousia, parousia in Greek, which that refers to his great coming or his second coming or his first coming in the incarnation, okay? That, that was, that's referring to a big event, the event of his coming, okay? Jesus uses this word himself when he's, later on when he's talking at the end of his life, when he's talking on that Olivet Discourse, when he's talking about, uh, you see the Son of Man coming, and he uses that word, parousia. But here, that's not the word John's using. When he's talking about this idea of when the people are thinking when the Christ appears, He's using another Greek word, this erkomai, and that Greek word simply means when he comes, when, when, when you come into here every morning, 
or that sort of thing, when he comes. He's talking about a physical coming into something. And there's a world of difference between these two words and these two uses. The people are thinking of something like the parousia. That's what they're thinking. Because they're, they're thinking that there is a, there's going to be an appearing of the Christ. This was the common thought amongst the people. That when the Messiah comes, he's just going to appear. They had no concept whatsoever that he would be born in Bethlehem. That he would grow up a natural human life. And at the age of 30 begin ministering and, and begin doing mighty works. They had no concept of that. So how can this guy be the Christ? This is, you can kind of get your mind into the perplexity that people are having. And the reason I wanted to tie that together is I, I want us to begin to have, well, how shall I say this? I think there's something we can learn about compassion here for people's attitudes. One of the keys to love, we've talked about love, as St. Augustine said, love is the key. Loving everyone is the key to not judging them wrongly. And having compassion on them is, is part of the key, is that we don't know. We don't know why they think the way they think. You know, we think the Bible is so obviously true and it's so obviously readily available. And it's been so obviously preached so much. How can anyone just not know the Bible? How can they just not know right from wrong? Well, there's an awful lot of people that don't know the Bible. There's an awful lot of people that don't know. And, and they may have heard the name Jesus Christ. They've heard the term Bible. But they have no clue why or what it truly is or who he truly is. So just like those people had developed a wrong understanding over hundreds of years of what the appearing of the Christ was really going to be like, so too in our own world there are many who have a wrong understanding of things, but we should not judge them for it. We should love them and be compassionate and patient and, shall I say, witness or minister to them in the way that Christ did which was to show examples of love and to live a life of love. The greatest ministry, the greatest testimony of any Christian is to live a Christ-like life, not to speak or teach people the truth. I know we're in a teaching setting here, okay? But, and this is, this is fun and I love it, but the reality is people learn to know Christ much more from catching a glimpse of who he is in the way we live than anything we say here teach or preach. You see what I mean? Uh, there's an old saying that says, more is caught than taught. Do you know what I mean? More is caught than taught. And love certainly is that way. Love is better caught than taught in that sense. So, what do we do with this perplexity of the people? What do we do with this really perplexing word that Jesus has said, you will seek me, but you will not find me. And where I'm going, you cannot go. What do we do with that? What do you think? What do you think Jesus meant by that? What was he talking about? Anybody see what he's talking about? He's talking about his crucifixion, his death, and his ascension. He's talking about that in that order. You will seek me and you will not find me. Why? Because he has been crucified, dead, buried, risen, and ascended. 
What he's saying, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And what he's saying really is, I'm the Christ. I am going to be killed. I am going to lay down my life. And I am going to be raised from the dead. And I am going to go back to heaven. And I, you can't go with me. So, what do we do? What do they do with that? If anyone there understood that, and I'm not sure that anyone there understood it because they didn't, they go, well, what does he mean? Where is he going to go? That we can't find him. Who does he think he is? So they think, well, maybe he means he's going to the dispersion. Do you know what the dispersion is? Anybody know what that term means? Sometimes your version might say the diaspora. What do some of your versions say there? Dispersion. Dispersion? Dispersion. Dispersion to the dispersed in the... That means to the Jews who live outside of Israel, which is now called Palestine. Remember, it's not called Israel anymore in that day because it was, it was uh, taken, the Romans created this area, they called it Palestine. That's an English translation, Palestina is what the Romans called it. Um, but it's Israel. And the Jews, remember, they were scattered in that, in that both of those uh, Captivities, the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity in the Old Testament. They were taken off to foreign lands. Well, they didn't all come back. There was no way they could all come back. So there was a great dispersion. There were many Jews living in every country of the world at that time, every nation of the world, because they had been scattered. And those are what he's talking about when he says, are they going to them? And then even worse than that, they say, maybe he's going to the Greeks. Is he going to go teach? I think they say the word. And teach the Greeks? Because the predominance of everyone, when they say, the, when the, John uses the word the Greeks, he doesn't just mean the people living in Greece. He means Gentiles. The Greek became a word. Because Greek, this just shows you how, how prevalent Greek thought was. Greek, well, even though the Romans were ruling the world, the Greek language, the Greek culture, the Greek, Greek, they never were able to surpass the Greek. The Roman Empire never could surpass the Greek. Never Latin, as the official language of the Roman Empire, never took over the common language of business the way Greek did. So the scriptures were first written in Greek because that was the natural language of all commerce and business. So when he says to the Greeks, he means to the rest of the world. Is he going to go teach the Gentiles? Because again, their mind of what they believe about a Messiah would never go off and teach Gentiles. The Messiah was just for Israel in their mind. Even though the Old Testament speaks plainly about the Messiah coming to save everyone, they don't get that. Again, they're so far removed from their ability to study and teach the truth. And the ones who could study and teach it, the ones who should have known and caught all these little details are who? There's a group in this crowd that should have known. The Pharisees, that's correct. Those guys knew the scriptures. They should have known. But they didn't. Why? Because they were hardened in their hearts. What does it take to keep us from getting hard in our hearts? It takes compassion. It takes willingness to love. It takes willingness to forgive. All of these things that we, that we know as Christ-likeness. That's what it takes. Um, so, they end with a question. They end this section with a question. What does he mean? 
Uh, and they, they just simply say, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I'm coming, you cannot come. The great prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, and you know that Isaiah wrote many words concerning who the Messiah would be and about messianic prophecies. The great prophet Isaiah said this in chapter 55. He says in verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Those, if you read that whole chapter, of 50, I mean that's chapter 55, frankly, and we're going to look, it'll, it'll play into what we study next week because next week, as you turn the page on this story, Jesus is going to be the last great day of the festival. And Jesus is going to stand up at the great day of the festival. There was, this, there was this ceremony of the pouring of water. would stand up in the temple and from the very steps of the temple, in the very center of it all, and pour water onto the ground. It was actually water mixed with wine. And it was symbolic, of course. And he, Jesus has some words. Jesus says, and if you just flip over, we'll just look at them by way of kind of, by kind of introducing that study. It says, on the last, verse 37, on the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and proclaimed, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the people's a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you. Because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And then the very next word we read, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Those words that we read, those first six verses, that's God speaking. Isaiah is writing but it's, he's writing from the, from the voice of God the Father, speaking to the people through, and he speaks about the anointed one, the Christ or the Messiah. And notice in verses 4, he says, Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples. Well, who's him? Jesus, the Messiah. I have made my Messiah a witness to the peoples and a leader and a commander for the peoples. And then verse 5 is very telling. He says, behold, it's like, it's like God is speaking to, the, to Jesus here, the Messiah. He's saying, behold, you will call a nation you do not know. Well, that's the world. That's the Gentiles. But then he says, and a nation which knows you, that's Israel. A nation which knows you will not run to you. Because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So, we're seeing some very messianic prophecies fulfilled right here in this chapter. We're seeing Jesus proclaiming himself to be from God. 
He's claiming that his teachings are obviously the source of them is God, the Father. And in just a little while in this very study over these, you're going to see him use words that say, I am God. So it's very revealing. This whole time of the Feast of Tabernacles is very revealing in who Jesus is to the world. Uh, I want to close with that thought. The people didn't know what he, who he was or where he was going. Some of them did begin to believe. An awful lot of people were in perplexity about this. And the leaders were hard-hearted. And I wonder if that's not where we are today. I wonder if that's not where we are today in our world today. Some of the people know who Jesus is, and they follow him. A lot of the people are in perplexity about him. They've heard stories. They know there's these people out there called Christians that follow this Christ. But they don't really know. But there's an awful lot of leaders that are hard-hearted. Because they're preaching a Jesus that doesn't match up with the love that we see in Scripture. So anytime um, there was a debate, I don't know how many of you, uh, I don't know how many of you saw the royal wedding. You know, if we're going to be relevant here today, we should talk about the royal wedding, right? But did, did anybody here watch it? No. Okay, a couple did. Good, good, good. Well, I didn't watch it. It was too early for me. <laughs> I went and watched clips, though. <laughs> went and watched clips, and the uh, the preacher, the wedding preacher, was a black bishop from Chicago, Illinois, who was the just happens to be the presiding bishop. That means he's the he's the head bishop over all bishops of the Episcopal Church in the United States. The Episcopal Church in the United States is a sister church to the Anglican or the Church of England, okay? Which is what the royal family is, and they're getting so they're they're kind of like sisters in, in the faith and brothers in the faith. So it's not unusual for them to invite maybe someone like that. But isn't it interesting that the message that he preached? Did anyone hear the message? Or read about it? What did you think? Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. But guess who's out there criticizing it? Some leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and, and I'm going, yeah, I've got things I disagree with Episcopalians on. Okay, I, I do disagree with them on some things. But the gospel is the gospel, and love is love. And he preached the fire of the love of the gospel in an anointed way that seemed to me. And, and I'm just in shock that these Southern Baptists are, are some of the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention are going, picking it apart. What he didn't do, and I said, you know, that, it seems to me we're right back where we were in the first century. There's some leaders who are a little hard-hearted who don't see the plain love of the God. You know, the truth is, it's all about love. If I could, if I could say anything to, capsule, to encapsulate everything we've studied this morning, it's all about love. When we truly love one another, we don't care if they're Episcopalian or Baptist. We don't care if they think a little differently about this doctrine or that doctrine. If we love Jesus, Jesus, Love covers a multitude of sins, the Apostle Paul says. Love is everything. Everything is love. I can't get, I can't get there enough. 
especially when we can learn. We haven't truly learned to love until we can love our enemies. Now, some of us here in this room may not have any enemies. I hope you don't have any enemies. You know, we live in a pretty free country. We don't really have any enemies, so to speak. But you know, might. You might. You might have had some people persecute you along the way in some way or fashion. I've had some people that were difficult in my life over the years. I've had to learn to love and forgive. And what God has taught me, there were some specific events. I won't go into the details, of course, but, but they were pretty devastating details. And, and I was pretty disappointed in some people. But God taught me, Brad, you've got to love them. You've got to find a way to love them. And, and you know what real love is? Real love isn't just forgiving. Real love is praying that they are blessed. Pray for them that they are blessed. It doesn't matter what they did to us. Pray that they're blessed. And I heard that in Rhonda's words. You pray for your dad. You pray for your dad to be blessed. You want him to make it to heaven. You can't affect that. You're not his stumbling block and you're not his savior. But that is love when we pray for those who persecute us. Well, any closing thoughts or comments today? I heard a preacher one time, and the title of his sermon was, Oh, No Man Anything But Love. Hmm. Or something like that. Interesting sermon. <laughs> what, what, how did you tell, tell us what he meant? Well, that's, you, you owe him love, period. Yeah. I mean, anything but not, love. But. You may not owe him agreement. Yeah. Or disagreement, whatever. But you owe him love. You owe him love. So the title, therefore, Oh Man, Anything But Love. Don't ask me to do that. Huh? Well, no, oh, oh Man. Oh Man. Oh, okay. I was thinking oh like man. a question. Okay. Love. Oh That's Man. O-W-E. That's what you... Oh. Yeah. I was hearing an O-H. Oh. Like, I heard this cool title that said, Oh Man, Anything But Love. No, no. Don't <laughs> ask me to love him. <laughs> and then he was going to turn oh, around I, and say, That's I, exactly I what he asked you. <laughs> so, Oh Man. That's yeah. what you owe them. O-W-E. A- Amen. Amen. That's exactly what we owe. When I was thinking of judgment. I mean, we can all have different opinions or different perspectives. And someone said one time, well, you can't both be right, but you could both be wrong. That's true. <laughs> and we need so, to keep ourselves open to that. Yeah. I mean, in, in my thinking, I may think, well, they're believing wrong, or they're mm-hmm. well. <laughs> I could be wrong. Right, that's exactly I, right. So uh, I mean, when we and we need to hold ourselves open to that possibility. I'm not. No, I, I like it. I like what you're saying. And I, you know what? I may be wrong on a lot of things. And that's why sometimes when you hear me pray, I pray, Oh Lord, don't let things that I say that are wrong be taken the wrong way. I don't want to be, you know, the Bible says, Scripture teaches that those who teach are going to be held to a higher standard. So it is very uh, in trepidation that I stand before you trying to teach Scriptures that were written 2,000 years ago that have a very, that have at one time and at one and the same time a very simple meaning but yet a very complex meaning. And uh, so I don't take that lightly and I pray it doesn't mislead anyone astray. God knows your heart. Amen. He's probably the only one. (laughs) I've heard a lot, you know, uh, things about the Amish community that, not good, but when that man went in and shot 
those kids in the Amish schoolhouse mm -hmm. and how they went and ministered to his yeah. wife yeah. and gave and forgave right away. Wow. I mean, That's a compassion. I mean, that that was uh, It's huge, isn't it? That was huge for me to see because I can't forgive just like that. It seems yeah. like I when I've had to forgive someone I've had to take some time. It keeps coming back yeah. up and I have to Oh well, I'm with you. But to the world, that did. They talked about that a lot. How they were so forgiving. They, but they couldn't understand. Yeah. So most they, people could not. Most how people. How can you do that? How can you do that? that yeah. Their child mm -hmm. had just been killed oh. a day or two before. So hard and to understand. They go to the wife. And yeah. Hold no ill feeling against her. That's an amazing, it's an amazing example of the love of Christ being lived out. There's only love, only, it's only Christ that can do that in us. Right. We can't do that on our own. Right. Only Christ. And that's what Paul means. That's what we're called to be. When Paul, the great apostle, says, it is no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. Paul is talking about a mystical union with Jesus Christ who by his spirit lives within me, giving me that kind of love or giving him that kind of love or giving them that kind of love because there's no way in my humanity I could do that. But we can through Christ. And in another place, Paul finally says, all things are possible through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So let us never say, well, I'll never be able to do that. I'll never be able to love them. I'll never be able to forgive them. I'll never be able to. All things through Christ who gives us strength. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for time together this morning in your word. And for those that were not able to be here, we pray that you're with them and, and blessing them. And, uh, and Lord, for all that ever hear this through the podcast, we just pray that you will uh, open their hearts to hear and that you would cover over anything that I say that's wrong. May your truth be proclaimed, your love of Jesus Christ, who, who first loved us so that we may love each other. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.